This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. TV has turned its attention lately to people who are second in command. Sometimes these political figures are portrayed as shrewd, even conniving, like Frank Underwood when he was vice president in House of Cards. You're a businessman, Dan, so I know your primary concern is profits. Well, that's right. But I'm offering you something that's far more valuable than money. A direct line to the White House. Others are bumbling, often irrelevant. Good morning. Good morning, morning, ma'am. How's my day looking, Sue? You have uh, one community college meeting this afternoon. Is that it? Yes. No, 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 no. How about if you scroll up? That's the past, ma'am. That's from the TV show Veep. They are both extreme examples of how these characters struggle with what their roles are. We're thinking about this as Colorado awaits its next lieutenant governor. John Hickenlooper nominated Kaiser executive Donna Lynn. Her confirmation is pending in the state Senate. Lynn spoke with Ryan Warner. Donna Lynn, welcome to the program. Thank you. To what extent are you an extension, do you see yourself, of Governor Hickenlooper? And to what extent do you see yourself as originating ideas for this state? First, as lieutenant governor, my number one job is to continue the policies and the initiatives that the governor and his administration have started. But I do think there's a little bit of a a spin on that um, because the governor has asked me to become the chief operating officer for the state, which is a position that didn't exist before. We'll dig into the position of COO in just a moment. But by way of introduction, you are currently an executive vice president at the health giant Kaiser former chair of the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. You also worked in New York City government for several years. What was your first thought when the governor called and asked you to do this? Oh, um, I have a tendency to say yes all the time to things. And I was struggling because as much as I wanted to say yes, I do have a great career at Kaiser and um, really envisioned that I would continue that for a number of years. So let's go back to this idea of being the COO. This is certainly government drawing from a a corporate structure, would you say? Absolutely. Um, Most enterprises, large and small, have a chief financial officer, a chief operating officer, and that's the model that the governor's envisioned. You won the approval of the Democratic-controlled House last week, and in a committee hearing there to consider your nomination, there was a lot of talk of efficiency, your ability to find efficiencies, to create them. Give me a specific efficiency you think state government could benefit from. Well, I think uh, one is we have a lot of agencies that work in the healthcare space. They're literally, depending on how you count, are five or six. And bringing those agencies together is really going to be a focus that I have. Do you have some sense that they are not today all on the same page? I think it's more that there are, as you say, some efficiencies that can be accomplished by bringing them together and to working with the private sector. As somebody who does that now and interacts with all of those agencies, I can see some overlap and opportunities. Can you give me an example? Well, one of the things that Kaiser does as a health plan is that we intersect with the Department of Personnel Administration because we offer benefits to state employees. We intersect with the insurance department because they approve our rates, and we intersect with uh, what It's called HICPA for the Department of Healthcare Financing and Policy. And I think a coordinated approach to not just Kaiser, but to each of the health plans that offer benefits would create some opportunities for the state to use, quite frankly, its purchasing power. And so you think the consumer might benefit from that arrangement? I think the individual 
purchaser, whether it's the employer or the individual consumer, could save on their insurance rates. You held a similar role, as we said, in New York City government before moving to Colorado. Can you tell me something specific you did there to make things more efficient? Absolutely. So in New York, we had multiple departments doing similar kinds of things. So we consolidated some of those agencies like personnel and administration. Another thing that I did was I coordinated emergency management. So we actually created um, the Office of Emergency Management in New York, and it delivered services a lot more efficiently than they were currently spread out over multiple agencies. In articles from that time, some of them in the New York Times, there was reporting about a turf war that was then created between the police and this mayor's office of emergency management and this sense that in some crises, it was hard to determine who was in charge. That's absolutely correct. Up until then, the police were always in charge. And as you can imagine, not every emergency in a city needs the police to be in charge. So a snowstorm of unprecedented magnitude is an emergency. But you need a lot of other expertise in many emergencies, whether they're weather-related, they're spills of toxic material. It's not always about the public safety in the traditional way that a police department might look at it. Did that chapter, though, teach you, perhaps, about the obstacles to creating efficiencies or that an efficiency might create more problems than it solves? What it taught me was that collaboration was critical to getting any job done. How did you smooth things out with the police department? Well, the mayor helped a lot because we issued an executive order creating that entity. We also hired an individual who had a lot of background and experience in public safety. And I think there was clearly a recognition that the police department had other things to do in some of those situations. This was uh, Mayor Giuliani at the time. So you have 20 years working in healthcare. That is obviously an area of expertise. And Coloradans will get to vote on a universal healthcare system called Colorado Care in November. What do you think are the pros and cons of such a system? Well, I think the first um, thing I'd like to say is, is that the Affordable Care Act already has taken us down a path that has created greater coverage. Colorado Cares takes it much farther. It throws out uh, a system that we've spent years building now under the Affordable Care Act and um, creates, obviously, a substantial tax on both businesses and individuals. I think my view and the view of the governor is we've made some great advances already under under the Affordable Care Act, and we need uh, additional years to see that work before we throw out that system. You say it uh, creates something of a tax burden, but I think that proponents would argue that uh, there are a lot of benefits in return if you do something like that. Um, I think the jury's out. I don't think we've seen an articulation of what all of those benefits would be. The state now spends more than $5 billion a year on Medicaid. Many Republicans at the Capitol would like to see that number come down significantly. Would you support cutting Medicaid spending somehow? So I think an important thing to recognize about Medicaid and those people who don't have insurance is that we all pay for it one way or another. There's 
cost shifting that happens that goes to the private sector, to businesses, and to individuals if we have people who are uncovered. They still go to the emergency room and they still get care. Are you saying that if you compare the burdens, the Medicaid burden is a, is a better burden to be bearing? I think if the Medicaid program is run efficiently, um, it's absolutely a better burden. Do you see Medicaid in this state as an efficient system? I think uh, the governor and his team have done a great job. Organizations are given additional money to help manage the care of particularly chronically ill patients. But I do think there's additional opportunities. Can you give me an example you've seen that makes you think that? Sure. First of all, in uh, Colorado, there's only four health plants that are providing services to Medicaid patients. Many have opted to stay out. And I think a lot of people would agree competition is a good thing. So if you have more health plans agreeing to participate in the program, um, it leads to, I think, creative thinking and uh, lower prices for the state. And the state has to purchase those services on behalf of the Medicaid recipients. But you have to make the insurance companies want to provide That's right. that coverage. And many so, of them stay out because they argue that the reimbursement isn't sufficient. So how do you lure more insurance companies into that market? Oh, I think the governor's bully pulpit is, is, is tremendously effective in luring them in. That is, he commands them to? But, <laughs> I said lure. <laughs> but you said bully pulpit. So the word bully has appeared in your language there. But you think he ought to persuade them? I think some... he ought to persuade them. Uh, you know, just to, to go back to something of a philosophical question around Medicaid, um, more than 20 percent of Coloradans are now on the program, and that number continues to grow. In some ways, doesn't that demonstrate that Colorado is already heading towards a single-payer type system as envisioned in something like Colorado Care? Well, is, is it so far from the, the current tact? So 20 percent still leaves 80 percent who, uh, through their employer or through their individual purchasing decisions, have said, no, I don't want to be in that program. Obviously, there's income limits with respect to Medicaid, but uh, many employers view that how they design their health care program is an important recruitment and retention device. And so the diversity of how benefits are designed is, is pretty broad across uh, the employer population. And that's where most people still continue to get their health care. It sounds like you're a, a fan of Obamacare in general, of the Affordable Care Act. I think the say? Affordable Care Act recognized two important things, that we had 50 million people in the United States who were not covered by a health plan. The other thing I think the Affordable Care Act did is it started a conversation around quality. When one insurer on the state's healthcare exchange, the nonprofit Colorado Health Op, went under last year, it left 80,000 customers without insurance and more than $100 million in outstanding claims. Now those claims are or will be paid off by a special guarantee fund that is set up for just such a circumstance. And to replenish that fund then, insurers may put a surcharge on customers. How concerned are you that consumers will see their bills go up in the coming years because of the health ops collapse? I am concerned about that. And I am concerned that the health op, while I think the idea was a good one, didn't understand the importance on, and the difficulty of setting up an insurance company. I mean, you can have a bad flu season one year. You need reserves to be able to pay those claims. Um, 
I think that the health insurance companies who still remain in the um, exchange are going to do the best they can to try to absorb some of those costs, but it is inevitable that they'll be pushed back out to consumers. And how much do you think that would be? I honestly don't know. I know we've been given a surcharge so that we can continue to replenish uh, the guarantee fund. We being Kaiser. We being Kaiser. So Kaiser has passed that on or hasn't yet? Not yet. Not yet. But but you anticipate passing it on. I anticipate that we will have to pass some of that on. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Governor John Hickenlooper's pick for his lieutenant, his new lieutenant governor. That is Kaiser Executive Donna Lynn. You have been critical of freestanding emergency rooms, saying in a House committee hearing that there's not much demand for them. Um, In theory, they bring important health care closer to where patients are uh, in a mall parking lot, for instance. Uh, What do you dislike about them? Well, I had a personal experience, actually, with one of them where I was given an inducement to actually go visit one. Um, I was told, I was given some information as a consumer just walking around uh, one of the street fairs, uh, that if I went to the emergency, that freestanding emergency room, I could get a $25 Starbucks card. Um, We don't do those kinds of things because that is actually an inducement. So I had a personal experience, and uh, there's, quite frankly, an explosion in new facilities all over the state. And my own observation is um, I rarely see any of them with any cars in the parking lot whenever it is that I go by them. And I try to just sort of look around and see because I do want to create um, the right kind of wearing my Kaiser hat, the right kind of access to health care. And so won't the market just determine their fate? Yeah, the market can determine their fate. I think there's been some um, strong evidence, though, that some of them have engaged in uh, some billing practices that are quite extraordinary from a uh, finding things that are wrong perspective. What exactly are you saying there? Is that an accusation or? It's not an accusation. I think there's some evidence that we have seen a proliferation of uh, for-profit emergency rooms. I haven't heard a hue and cry that we don't have sufficient geographic coverage from uh, our members and we hear from our members all the time. You uh, expressed some distaste at the notion of the Starbucks card, you know, as a way to kind of lure people to that service. Kaiser advertises everywhere. I mean, I feel like everywhere I turn, I see a Kaiser logo. Isn't what is good for the goose good for the gander? I think they're two very different things. Part of what we advertise about is um, the importance of prevention and taking care of yourself. But we don't provide financial inducements for someone to come in and get care. You did not get unanimous support in the House committee that approved your candidacy last week. Tell us about an example in your background when partisanship was front and center in an issue you worked on. Uh, Or is this new territory? Most of my work in uh, government up until uh, when I was in New York City was very nonpartisan. And I think... Are Are you ready for that? Um, well, I think, first of all, the role that the governor has has carved out for me is very similar to what I did in the past. And yet so many of the issues we've talked about even so far in healthcare are very partisan. So how do you address those without getting your feet in the political waters? Well, I think, you know, bring up a great point. There isn't a stark line between policy and operations. They often intersect. I think my point was I have a great team around me, as does the governor, who 
think about policy, including the, the agency heads. And I would rely on their working with me to think about when those things cross, how do we approach those issues? You've given about $10,000 in political contributions since 2000, nearly all to Democrats, according to the National Institute on Money and State Politics. Uh, That includes more than $2,000 to Governor Hickenlooper's campaign, making the allowable limits in 2010 and 2011. Uh, Now you're nominated to be in his cabinet. Is there any quid pro quo here? (laughs) I don't think there's any quid pro quo. Um, I, like thousands uh, or hundreds of thousands of people, have chosen to give the governor uh, money. And um, this was not anything I pursued. This was uh, an ask that the governor made uh, once Lieutenant Governor Garcia uh, resigned his office. And uh, I will be resigning a a position in the private sector that provides me with a different kind of compensation than what the lieutenant governor provides. A higher compensation, you're saying. (laughs) In the private sector. In the private sector. All right. In addition to lieutenant governor and COO of Colorado, you may become the head of the state's Department of Indian Affairs. What would you like to accomplish in that arena? Uh, should I be confirmed? Uh, one of my first duties is to head down to Cortez to uh, meet with all of the um, representatives of the various tribes. For me, this is going to be a big learning experience. Um, I uh, have not had anything in my past like this. And I'm very sensitive, though, to the issues that uh, the Indian are facing with respect to the same kind of issues we all face, particularly in rural Colorado, which is, you know, the importance of health care and the importance of education for everybody that lives in those locations. When you were nominated, Governor Hickenlooper said you weren't interested in becoming governor when he leaves office. Uh, He's term limited in 2018. Are you at least leaving open the possibility of running? No, not at all. The state constitution says that the lieutenant governor has to succeed the governor if he or she leaves office for some reason, even temporarily because of illness, something like that. Uh, Those are the only constitutional duties, I believe. And, you know, there's been speculation that Governor Hickenlooper could garner an appointment in a in a Clinton administration were that to manifest come November. Are you prepared to be governor in that scenario? And is he I suppose (laughs) is this another way of asking if has he talked to you about this? So first and foremost, uh, to the extent that we've had detailed conversations, it's been about his vision as lieutenant governor, and that's going to be my focus. So we've not had a conversation about that, and other than what he's declared publicly that he thinks that I'm ready, I'm going to take him at his word. Um, I think there'll be a lot that I have to learn about in order to do that should that opportunity ever happen. But if he knew that he wanted to join a Clinton administration, wouldn't that be a very different call to his – potential deputy. Like, listen, you're going to probably have this job in a year. Um, As I said, his focus has been on, I want you to be the lieutenant governor. I want you to be the chief operating officer. That's been our conversation. And that's been to the extent that I'm getting prepared and I'm putting prepared in quotes. uh, That'll be the focus of of my preparation uh, once all of the um, approvals happen. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Donna Lynn is the nominee to be Colorado's next lieutenant governor. She must still win support from the Republican-controlled state Senate. Lynn spoke with Ryan Warner. There's a transcript of the interview at CPRnews.org. Still to come, Colorado-based sports authority is going under, but the sporting goods industry remains strong. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Sports Authority is closing its doors for good. The Englewood-based sporting goods retailer, one of the nation's largest, with more than 450 stores, filed for bankruptcy in March. It had hoped to restructure, but now says it will sell all of its assets and shut down. Matt Powell follows the sporting goods retail market for the NDP Group, a market research firm, and he joins me now. Welcome to the program. Hello. You write a regular blog about the industry for Forbes. A recent title was, What's Wrong in the Sporting Goods Business? And your answer, surprisingly, was nothing. Why do demographics look good for this industry? Well, there are several things that are driving the business today. Uh, Millennials are very focused on fitness and health. Uh, it's a part of their lifestyle every day. Uh, they're at working out and uh, and participating in sports at a very high level. And uh, that's really been driving the business forward for the last four or five years. And yet Sports Authority has gone under. It was purchased by a private equity firm in 2006. How did that affect the company's demise? Because things are looking so good overall. Well, typically what happens when a private equity buys out a company like they did with Sports Authority is that they take the debt that they incurred in making the purchase and actually put it on top of the company. So the company itself is forced to uh, to try to service that debt. And uh, what often happens is it prevents the retailer from investing in the stores, investing in systems, and uh, that's exactly what happened with Sports Authority. They really uh, fell behind the rest of the industry and uh, – and then the, I think the tipping point really was the fact that we did not have much of a winter in most of the country this year. You certainly did in Colorado, but in most of the part of the country, there was no winter and, and uh, seasonal products didn't sell as well as expected. And, and I think that was what, what tipped them over finally. So essentially people weren't buying jackets and boots and things, which, of course, Sports Authority stocked up on like every other Sports Correct. Authority. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Was it just this company or did the weather hurt other sporting good retailers as well? No, I think everyone was impacted by the lack of winter uh, this year. And, uh, for instance, Dick's Sporting Goods, which is uh, the largest sports retailer in the country, um, did not have a great fourth quarter um, because of the seasonal problems. And they're they're still open, and they're just still doing well. So is it really that private equity firm thing that happened in 2006? Yeah, I think the, I think the, the debt really crushed them. Uh, again, this, they weren't able to spend the kind of money that you need to today in retail to create a great customer experience. Um, they didn't have the systems that were updated that putting the right products in the right stores at the right time. Um, all of that, I think, uh, rolled up, uh, made them a much weaker competitor. I've heard of this thing called uh, showrooming, uh, where people go to a store to try something on, and then they go home and buy it online. What's been the impact of online shopping to Sports Authority? Well, I think it's affected the entire industry. A really interesting stat from our data that uh, uh, one in four uh, athletic shoes today are bought online. Um, so it's a huge part of the uh, of the sports business today. And retailers need to be very agile in terms of having a, a, a great website, a great web experience for the consumer. And uh, again, uh, I think Sports Authority, because of the crushing debt they had, were not able to make the kind of investments to, to really have a world-class uh, online business. So in your, your, your opinion, they did not have a strong online presence? That's correct. Sports Authority uh, has a storied history in Colorado. In 2003, it was merged with Gart Brothers. That's a long-standing Colorado chain. It, it was uh, well-known here. What's the value of a strong brand name like that? 
Very strong. In fact, Sports Authority was really the original big box sporting goods retailer in America. Um, and as an amalgam of, uh, as you point out, GART, and, and they also bought a company called um, Sportmart and that was uh, headquartered in Chicago. Uh, but sport, the Sports Authority name is, uh, is very, very well known and, and uh, very well respected. So since it's been respected, though, did that play out in terms of its success? It, it doesn't seem like it. Well, I think it. I think it helped them weather the fact that they were again under all this crushing debt. Uh, I think it helped them live as long as they did. But uh, of course, people have this concept of "What have you done for me lately?" You know, have you Correct. seen that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, the, the consumer is very much in control today of yeah. what's happening at retail, uh, much more than any time in my uh, in my years of experience. Uh, we've seen the consumer really be able to say, uh, I want to shop at the store, I want this item, and if you don't have it, I will uh, buy it online or I'll find somebody else who does. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Matt Powell is a sports retail analyst with the NPD Group and writes a monthly industry blog for Forbes.com. In recent years, Sports Authority opened a series of high-end shops called Sports Authority Elite, an attempt to compete with other boutiques uh, stores. How do you feel that strategy worked? Well, I think I think there was a conflict in the, in the conflicting uh, a point of view in that strategy. Um, the sports equipment business today in the United States is primarily a children's business. You think about kids playing little league or pop Warner football, um, and uh, they tried to sell in their elite stores really top end um, sports equipment, uh, which is really counter to I think where the the core of that. Uh, consumer really is on the apparel side. Uh, they they did have the right strategy. Uh, I think the brands really supported them by giving them exclusive product and special product. Um, but again, uh, I think the the overall position of the company was not solid, and and uh, these stores were not going to be able to carry them out of the out of the situation they were in. So was it a too little, too late type of thing, or was it more complicated yes. than that? No, I think I think that's exactly right. Uh, in, in a blog post that you wrote, you look ahead to post-millennial generation, the Gen Z generation. What kind of shoppers will they be, and what does it mean for sports retailers overall? Well, it's really interesting when you think about Gen Z. This generation has never known the world without a smartphone. And so mobile becomes extremely important today. In fact, as I advise retailers and brands on strategy, I I talk to them about making sure that their e-commerce strategy is mobile first, uh, that they need to build a great website for a phone um, and then worry about how to make it bigger for a PC or or laptop. Uh, So very, very important part of the strategy here. I think also uh, Gen Z is, again, going to be very focused on fitness and health. That's good for the industry. Um, but uh, and another interesting twist here is that they really want to know what the values of a company are. Uh, and if they don't agree with those values, they're going to take their business elsewhere. So it's more than just transactional now. They really want to have a relationship with a brand and with a retailer. And are you seeing examples of companies that are taking that forward and, and, and really putting that to use? Yes, I think so. Um, uh, just a recent example, Adidas uh, announced that they are no longer going to use plastic bags in their stores. And uh, I think this is um, a part of their sustainability strategy. Uh, and I think their sustainability strategy lines up very well with the values of, of Gen Z. What do you expect is going to happen to the stores and markets that Sports Authority is leaving empty? 
Well, some of them will, the best stores will be taken over by other retailers, whether it's another sports retailer or another uh, big box operator. So if the, if the locations were really quality locations, uh, they will continue uh, go forward as some kind of uh, a retail store, likely a, a sporting goods store. Um, but there are a lot of locations that really aren't very good. And, uh, you know, I think they'll, those will simply go away. And you mentioned earlier that Dick's Sporting's Good uh, a store had kind of a, a lower than expected earnings. Do you see possibly more of these stores going under in the years to come? Well, we also saw a chain called Sports Chalet uh, based in California that is uh, owned now by a, a private equity firm called Vestas. Uh, and they've announced that the, they're going uh, to close all of those stores. So uh, another chunk of stores going out, Finish Line, which is a, a sneaker chain out of Indianapolis, announced they were going to close 150 of their doors. Um, so there there will continue to be attrition here. We, we have in the United States, far too much retail real estate, um, not just in the sporting goods industry, but across the uh, across the spectrum. And uh, I expect that we will continue to see rationalization of stores. Aeropostal uh, filed for Chapter 11 this morning. Uh, PacSun just recently filed. Uh, so there, there are a lot of retailers who are going through a, a very serious rationalization right now. Matt, thanks for joining us. Glad to do it. Matt Powell is a sports retail analyst with the NPD Group and writes a regular industry blog for Forbes.com. The demise of Sports Authority may also be the end of the giant ski sale known as Sneagrab, an event started by Gart Brothers, which later merged with Sports Authority. For decades, bargain hunters would line up, even camp, outside the company's flagship. The sports castle at 10th and Broadway in Denver, the building's owner, hasn't commented on its fate. And the name of the Denver Broncos Stadium, well, that could also be changing from Sports Authority Field, but some Colorado lawmakers have introduced a bill to keep the tagline at mile high, no matter who pays for the naming rights. Just ahead, a century-old state law may be keeping you from knowing if your employer is stealing from your colleagues. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's say your employer withheld a paycheck from one of your coworkers or required them to work overtime without pay. You'd probably want to know these things before taking a job there, but you probably couldn't because of a 100-year-old state law that considers these kinds of wage theft violations trade secrets. A bill in the state legislature would change that, something Jeff Roberts is following. He leads the Freedom of Information Coalition in Colorado. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Why isn't this type of wage theft public information in Colorado? Well, the legislature in 1915 passed a law. It was the first worker compensation law in Colorado. And the way that law is interpreted, uh, information about wage violations. So if somebody uh, fails to to pay um, the minimum wage or they fail to pay overtime or... um, reimburse an employee for expenses, uh, when there's a violation of that, um, it may be, under this law, considered to be a trade secret. And the law also includes a provision that if a an employee of the Colorado Department of Labor employ, and Employment um, reveals a trade secret uh, to someone other than the, someone in their, in their own department, they could be fined $1,000 and they could lose their job. So the fact that this law has been interpreted this way has made it very difficult for this information to to come out. 
And violations of wage laws aren't just important to employees or potential employees. Consumers may also want to know how a business they shop at treats its workers. Uh, Jeff, Denver resident Joanne Fujioka testified about this at the state capitol recently. She's in favor of the bill. So that I can be doing my job as a responsible consumer. She said she likes to spend money at businesses that treat their employees well. Uh, how easy would it be for Joanne to find this information if this bill passes? Well, um, so uh, right now, if, if the federal government um, uh, investigates uh, an employer for wage violations, that information is public. In fact, there have been apps. Uh, I don't know if they're still around, but, but there have been apps where it, they've, it's, people have taken this data and made it very easy for someone to look up uh, an empl- an, uh, a place of business yeah. and, and find out this information. So if this information then becomes public uh, using the, the state database, um, then someone could either the state or someone else could take this data, create another app, uh, and and uh, make it pretty easy to use. So they have federal and also state data, right? Available. And and they're different. There 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 uh, there could be a federal investigation, but then the state does its own investigations. These complaints are dealt with administratively at the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment, and some do end up in court. In these cases, could a prospective employee, for example, find out about a, a state wage theft violation? Um, right. So, well, yes. If 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 a if a if it's already in court, then that information would be available. But there's not necessarily something that would point you to that. You you'd have to go, you know, looking in the court files. You may not know which county it's in. It would take some digging. So, if this database is available to you, um, you'd see. And under the way the this bill is currently written, um, it would only include um, uh, when a violation has been determined, and it's already gone through the appeals process. So it would have already had to have happened, and then it remain, It becomes public. Right. It's not just a complaint. It's, it's, a, it's a violation that's been, it's been determined on an administrative level. And then if, if someone then appeals that, an employer appeals that uh, to the judicial branch, mm. then uh, it has to go through that process as well. But that, if that happens, it, of course, it opens up a lot more information. I, I want to talk about uh, trade secrets. This this is interesting. Uh, you know, keeping trade secrets is one of the justifications for keeping these violations out of the public eye. Mm-hmm. That concern's been addressed in the bill, but it would no longer be the default to keep the information private. Uh, instead, the state labor department says in certain scenarios, trade secrets really are at stake. Uh, perhaps a company would have to say exactly what work an employee was doing, and that could be really technical and, and proprietary. Do, do you think the argument about trade secrets is a valid one to kill this bill? No, I don't think so. So they're in in the Colorado Open Records Act now, which is the the law that governs the the release of public information. Um, agencies, governments in Colorado can withhold um, uh, certain information if it is determined that w- it would uh, reveal a trade secret of a company. So that's in the law now. In this case, even. The, the lobbyist for the Department of Labor, Labor and Employment, when he was testifying on this bill, um, was having a hard time understanding when a trade secret would really come into play. Now, it's possible. Mm. But he said something like, so, I mean, we're not really talking about the secret formula for Coca-Cola that would come out if a, a company has been found to not be paying overtime. Um, 
So the way this bill is written, however, before this information is put into this public database, an employer would have 20 days to say, well, this information includes something that we think actually does uh, involve a trade secret that we don't think should come out. Uh, But the information that would come out under this bill is really the fact that a violation was found to have happened, a little bit about the case, and if there was a fine involved. And I have to say the Labor Department is technically neutral uh, on the bill. Uh, We should note that. Uh, Is there anyone against this bill? We saw that no one testified against it when it came up in the House committee. Uh, No Republicans, though, have signed on to the bill, and some voted against it on the House floor. What are their concerns? Well, the the bill did pass um, 11 to nothing in the House Judiciary Committee, and there were um, some people, some Republicans, um, who raised some concerns about this. The main thing that I heard is they wanted to make sure that nothing would come out until an employer had a chance to to to, to raise the question about whether there truly was a trade secret involved in this information and uh, to make sure that the case had already gone through the process. So I think some people had those concerns. Um, but uh, Representative Jesse Danielson, who's the sponsor of this of this legislation, she's a Democrat from Wheat Ridge. She did a very good job of bringing all the parties together here before this bill even was introduced. It it was introduced fairly late in the session. She got the Colorado Association of Commerce and Industry, which is essentially the state chamber of commerce. She got them on board with the version of this bill. She got the uh, the advocates, the labor advocates, uh, on on board. Um, and so th- there's a lot of people that came together on this compromise. Overall, there are more than 4,000 complaints like this a year, according to the state. And of the ones closed in 2015, the average amount paid back to employees was more than $1,100. So this is definitely not just, you know, 15 to 20 people. There are thousands of, of, of these things happening. Um there were some tough questions from lawmakers. Some are concerned that if a company appeals a ruling that it withheld paychecks for too long or something like that, it would still show up as a black mark on their record. Is that a concern? Well, there could be um, individual cases like that. But what you're not able to find out right now is if somebody, some employer is a chronic violator. I see. I mean, you, you could look through, if it does end up in court, uh, you could look at uh, lots and lots of court records to to figure out at least some of this. Um, Rocky Mountain PBS, which which is the uh, news organization mm-hmm. that that revealed this this uh, this problem with the law about a year ago, um, they did they did a story about uh, a particular gas station company which has a thirty year track record in court records of of having complaints against them. But you can't then go to see whether the state has actually investigated and what they've found uh, from from that level. And so what are your prospects, I think, for getting this bill through? Is this something that you're confident about? Well, it's, it's interesting because it's it very late in the session. The bill has gone through the House, but it is not scheduled for a Senate committee until next Monday. The legislature ends on Wednesday. So it, it is cutting it very close. I mean, it did pass uh, 47 to 17 in the House, so it it has bipartisan support, and and there it was very strong support in the committee at the committee level, but it's pretty late in the game here, and it's it's hard to know what what's going to happen. 
Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jeff Roberts is executive director of the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition and a former Denver Post reporter. A Senate committee is scheduled to hear the wage law transparency bill on Monday. Still ahead, supersonic passenger flights ended 13 years ago. Could they be making a return? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's been 13 years since the supersonic Concorde touched down for the last time. That was live BBC coverage of the event from London's Heathrow Airport. The Concorde won fans with its sleek style and speed. It could get you from New York to London in less than half the time of a conventional airliner. But it was a bit of a white elephant. Round trips cost $20,000, and still the plane never turned a profit. Now a Colorado company wants to revive the dream of supersonic passenger flight. Centennial startup Boom Technology has a deal with the Virgin Group for 10 jets. Blake Scholl is Boom's founder and CEO. Welcome to the program. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. What makes you think you can succeed where the Concorde failed? Well, Concorde was designed 50 years ago with slide rules. And you know, like you said, the problem was not that it didn't work technologically. The problem was the prices were too high for people to afford. And the problem was fuel economy behind that. It was a gas guzzler. And today we've got improved aerodynamics, better engines, lighter materials, and you can build a supersonic aircraft that's way more affordable. And what about fuel economy? I, I've heard that there could be a 30% improvement in fuel economy with your with your jet. Yeah, actually a little bit more than 30%. And that lets you get prices down from $20,000 to about the same price as a ticket in business class. Here's the thing. Your jets will only have 40 seats. Is that correct? That's right, yes. So how does that balance with passenger space shrinking currently in favor of adding more seats and paying customers on traditional jets? Uh, well, you want to build a great passenger experience. So this is this is targeted at initially. So let me back up. Our long-term vision is to make supersonic travel available for everybody. Got it. You think anywhere in the world in five hours for 100 bucks. That's a decades-long mission. And we're starting with the simplest product that we can get to market quickly, and still, uh, still find a large number of customers. And so it's targeted at business travelers. It hits the same price points as tickets in business class. And at 40 seats, unlike Concorde with 100, it's actually viable on many routes. And not just New York to London, but San Francisco to Tokyo and Washington to Paris and uh, here to Shanghai. So a Concorde ticket was about $20,000. What would a seat on your future plane go for in the beginning? In the beginning, about $5,000 round trip New York to London. And so is that is that comparable to a first class? It's flight? it's like it's like business class. I, actually, if you go and you look for ticket prices today, you'll probably find it's a bit more than that in business class. And you said eventually you want the ticket to go lower than five thousand dollars. That's right. This sounds a lot like the business model for Tesla. Uh, that electric car company starts with a very high end electric car, and eventually something, of course, more affordable comes comes along. But in that case, there's a clear environmental benefit uh, with electric vehicles. What good comes from faster than sound travel? Well, it uh, makes Earth more accessible. Uh, it, it helps to look back in history. It's been 50 years since we last had a speed up in air travel. And I don't know if you're a, a Broncos fan, but before the jet age, there was actually no major league sports west of the Mississippi. Hmm. And the reason was it was just uh, the overhead of traveling was was too much to spread teams out. And so we have, you know, we have sports all across the country now thanks to the jet age. And with the supersonic age, which I believe is coming and it's coming quickly, is going to enable global sports leagues. It's not just going to let you get to the world more easily. It's going to bring the best of the world to you. 
Of course, we aren't in the jet-setting 60s. We know there's climate change. We have the Internet to maintain relationships via long distances. Is the dream of super rapid travel outdated in 2016 overall? No, I don't think so. I mean, we, we don't tolerate 1960 speeds on our phones, and we shouldn't tolerate the same on our airplanes. To address the question directly, yeah. uh, fuel economy and emissions go hand in hand. And like we said earlier, the big driver of Concord's ultra-high prices was the fuel economy was horrible. So when you make progress on fuel economy, you make progress on prices, you make progress on emissions. And a, a lay-flat bed on business class today will have the same sort of fuel economy footprint as a seat on our airplane. And it does seem that people want this type of technology. Virgin, as we said, would like the first 10. An unnamed European carrier wants another 15. Uh, When would your company be delivering these supersonic jets? Well, we're working right now on our prototype, which is a sort of one-third scale uh, technology demonstrator, proves that the design really works. Uh, We're building that now, and it's going to fly end of next year. What about the sonic boom? Of course, I've heard that was an issue with Concorde, flying over areas. Uh, I know that was a huge concern. Can that be eliminated with your jet? Uh, It could be significantly mitigated. Uh, So our airplane will be about 100 times quieter than Concorde was. So still audible. Uh, but much less uh, much less disruptive. And our offices are less than a mile from, from your offices there. We're not going to have shattered windows when this jet flies over? <laughs> not at all, no. That, that's, that's mostly a myth. It's really hard to break windows with a sonic boom. Why did you start your company here in Colorado? Well, we looked everywhere in the country to find the best home for uh, a supersonic aircraft startup. And Centennial has a long test runway. It's got reasonably affordable real estate. But more importantly, the quality of living here is great. And to, to make something like this happen, you need to attract the best people from all around the world. And there's no better place than Colorado to do that. And, and so moving to Colorado, you, you, you have offices here now. Are, are you building the, the plane as we speak? Or, or how long is that? Yes. Well, so it's about an 18-month process from start of like serious construction to first flight. So we're going to go in full-scale construction mode later this year. If you walked into our hangar today, you'd kind of find test parts. You'd find the engine. Our engine will be up and running here just in a few days. And do you plan to build these planes here? Is that correct? We'd love to, yes. And so what does the ramp-up look like? Are you going to have, uh, you know, 17, 18 planes being built at one time? It just seems so uh, 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 far from now, I guess is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah, well, being fans of speed, we're doing this as quickly as you can. So like I said, the prototype will fly end of next year. After that, there's a more involved process of safety testing and regulatory approvals, and you don't want to skip those steps. So it'll be a few years before the first production aircraft start showing up. But after that, we're going to ramp it as quickly as we can. Now, you're not an aerospace engineer. You, you don't know how to, how to build a plane. So, so what makes you think that you could do something like this and, and build a supersonic jet? Well, I think most people underestimate how much they can learn when they're motivated and when they have a good idea of what clear understanding looks like. So this, is, this has been a passion of mine for years. I'm a pilot. I never got to fly on Concorde, and frankly, that pissed me off. Um, why, why? Because you, you, you essentially had the opportunity to go and you didn't? I was, I was too young and I couldn't afford $20,000 for a joyride. And so now you want to, is this kind of a, a revenge to the, to, the, to the aerospace gods saying, you know, what am I doing here? Well, I mean, I, if you look at the first 50 years of aviation from the Wright brothers forward, we literally had exponential progress in air travel. Uh, speeds were doubling or tripling about every 20 years, and that continued through the 1960s. So you know, today we think about you know, exponential progress as being confined to computers. It used to happen with airplanes. And we've had, we've had 50 years of no progress and making the world more accessible. And uh, our motivation is to, to pick that back up where it was left off and, and start pushing, pushing travel forward. 
But I guess what I'm trying to see here, we, of course, have uh, uh, maglev technology for high-speed railroads. We have things like that. There's a lot of perception that that's just way too expensive to, to build out. And I have to keep getting back to this question. Are we past this? Is this just going to be for maybe the elites that, that can spend $5,000, $10,000 on, on supersonic travel or, for example, high-speed travel? Yeah, there, I don't think there's any reason why you can't make it very broadly affordable. Um, when you when you go faster, uh, the challenge is fuel economy. But then there's what I think of as a speed dividend. You need less crew time, uh, less rent on the airplane. The same airplane can do more flights in the same period of time. All of that contributes to improved economy and greater affordability. And so I, I could also assume you could turn the planes quicker in terms of because they're going faster. Exactly. Uh, Let's say all of this goes according to plan and you get a production schedule. Um, when could we start seeing the actual planes in the air? Mm-hmm. Uh, not too far away, but we, ha- we haven't announced the exact schedule yet. We'll, we'll do that after we fly our prototype. And the prototype can be seen uh, now or when you're getting it done at the Centennial Airport? Absolutely. I, I want to ask, finally, as a CEO, are you looking to other uh, uh, visionaries like this that that are building these these type of products uh, across the country. Yeah, I, I think you know just in the last few years, it's been really inspiring to see what Elon Musk has accomplished at SpaceX and Tesla, what Bezos has accomplished at Blue Origin, and now some of the companies working on Hyperloop. Thank you so much. Blake Scholl is the CEO and founder of Boom Technologies in Centennial, Colorado. The company plans to build supersonic passenger jets and keep an eye to the sky. Like I said, he says they're being testing uh, prototypes as soon as next year. And that's our show for this Wednesday. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.